Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Hollow Earth by F.T. Ives. Published in 1904, it looks at the theories about what was beneath the Earth's surface. These theories were formed in the early 20th century, and a lot has been learned since then from science. Just a note for you listeners, the opening chapter uses the term crank, which I found confusing. The definition of a crank is an eccentric person especially one who is obsessed by a particular subject. I don't hear that word much anymore, if ever. I can only assume that it's a word that was used in the early 20th century. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. A massive thank you to Anne Spurgeon for becoming a new patron and contributing $4 per month to support the podcast. Your ongoing support is a true compliment and allows me to bring out more episodes for you and those who need it. Thank you to everyone who continues to sponsor and support the show. Whether it's $1 or $5, your support allows me to bring out more episodes. And if you would like to become a sponsor, please visit boyyoutosleep.com. It would also be amazing if you could... Leave a review and comment in iTunes or Spotify. And be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. The Hollow Earth by F.T. Ives Chapter 1 Cranks are appliances to turn things round. A crank that revolves only halfway will not always accomplish much of a change and in many cases would only aggravate the situation. Were it not for cranks, nearly all mechanical appliances would be motionless. Men's thoughts and opinions would all be the same without some such device to get them out of the old notions grooves and ruts, in which they long have indulged and plotted. The world has known cranks ever since our first parents adopted the wearing of fig leaves, and Noah took up shipbuilding on the weather bureau, suggesting cloudy weather and showers in eastern Turkey. Moses was a crank, and he forbid the eating of pork, saltwater eels, turkey buzzards, owls, and all other unclean birds, fish, or animals of any kind. Sacred Brit gives a plenty of such characters, 
but by skipping to times more recent, we find such cranks as Copernicus, Galileo, Columbus, Newton, Franklin, and during the last century, the crank family has greatly increased. Political, historical, and religious cranks have sprung up, turning over and upsetting many old fogey and absurd notions and beliefs of the past. In former times, cranks were the subject of ridicule and persecution for trying to inject some new ideas into the public mind. History is profuse with abuses of some of the best thoughts and discoveries that they have come to human race. Supposing Copernicus had never advanced and enforced a conclusion that the earth was round and revolved on its axis, such motion causing the apparent rising and setting of the sun. Only for this, we might to this day believe in the story of Joshua's command over the sun and moon and associate believers with Parson Jasper that the sun do move. It is pleasant to realise that we are living in a time when new thoughts do not frighten people and we are not scared at what we cannot understand, even if it does not harmonise with antiquated ideas purporting to be 4,000 to 6,000 years old. The humble and obscure individual who presumes to offer the few succeeding pages of crude ideas may be classed among pygmy cranks, but nevertheless feels impelled to sow a little thoughtful seed on a subject that, to his knowledge, has never been discussed and with a hope that such seed may some of it fall in good ground and spring up a crop of criticism that may ultimate in some better mind taking it up and demonstrate with the success that the writer believes it merits. To prove that the earth was round required a long time and a serious amount of persecution now to assume that it is hollow may require more time than the brief discussion in this small book. Yet it is hoped the ideas here may take root in the enlightenment of the present day and start a growth productive of good fruit in the future. In order to discuss this question involves a task that in the outset may look discouraging as follows. The axe may be laid at the roots of many favourite and long-accepted beliefs laid down by scientific authorities to explain the principal phenomena of disturbances on and in the Mother Earth and to overthrow nearly all accepted theories on the following subjects. The assumption that the Earth is intensely hot or in a molten state in its interior the presumption that it is a solid ball, the supposition that there is an actual pole, that hills and mountains are always results of volcanoes, that volcanoes are a prime or natural existence, 
that living springs and lakes are results of surface influence. The theories of the Gulf Stream, icebergs and the ice belts, their formation, glaciers how formed, equable condition of the Mediterranean Sea, fire and water, the two elements of fire and water are evidently the source of all created things. It is the purpose in this plain and homely dissertation to review and criticise some theories set forth by scientists and to introduce some new ones more acceptable to the mind of the writer and to be submitted to observing minds to decide upon their merit. It is a generally believed assertion that the earth has been a molten mass at or near its origin, except from the rather doubtful story of creation related in the first chapter of Genesis, where it appears that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. When or how they were created, the story fails to relate but admitting the waters to prevail to such an extent as to incline God's spirit from a voyage thereon would make the idea of a molten earth rather improbable. The earth is said to be undergoing a cooling process for the past thousands of years, but at some remote time in the past it was covered with ice and traversed by glaciers. There are various explanations of the phenomena of icebergs, glaciers, volcanoes, the Gulf Stream, and why the Mediterranean Sea does not fill up or change its conditions through the thousands of years known to history. The philosophy of earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, increase of heat in digging deep in the earth, artesian wells, springs, lakes, all have various solutions for being as they are, but this discussion proposes to throw into the wastebasket nearly all of the accepted conclusions on the subject, and in order to go to an extreme limit of crankism, will dispute the law of attraction of gravitation. To dispute the long-accepted conclusions on most of these topics would be presumptuous without an effort to give good and sufficient reason for such scepticism. The first element to consider will be fire, or heat, without which it seems safe to assert nothing can be produced from the earth, or by the devices of man, to draw a baseline to work from, we will begin at the polar centre of the Earth's motion. The Earth, unlike any other object that perpetually revolves that we will see or know of, does not have a shaft or axle, or anything to create friction and therefore heat. There is but one word in the English language that tells what will produce heat. That is friction, which may claim motion for its parentage. Now this proposition is offered for a starting point. All heat is produced by friction, 
in the absence of which there can be no heat. This claim made, and presumably well established, how can there be any central heat of the earth, revolving on nothing but an imaginary centre? Will any scientist explain at what point heat begins to generate? It would appear as difficult as to accurately fix the point when moral responsibility commences in a child, or just when the wheel of time will cease to revolve. At whatever point heat begins, it is supposable that it works internally or outward. Any observing mind can give but one answer. It is claimed to prove the molten condition of the Earth's interior, that the various borings for artesian wells and diggings in mines show a uniform increase of heat as greater depths are attained. All these ratios of increase differ somewhat in different localities, but not enough to have ever banished the idea that at a few thousand feet of depth everything would be as liquid mass. This idea ought to be absurd enough to make a brazen image smile. Let us consider what these explorations into the bowels of earth amount to. The deepest holes bored or dug are, without exception, less than a mile deep. Admitting a mile, that is, one to four hundredth of the distance towards the centre, Imagine a puncture on an orange, or on a ball eight inches in diameter, being four inches to the centre. Is there any man living could see a hole as small in proportion to its size to one in four thousand of one half of its diameter? How insignificant such a test. Reasons for this delusion will be given later on under treatment of volcanoes. Again, the Earth's surface is covered with at least four-fifths water at depths, ranging from one to five miles, including the millions of springs, lakes and rivers on land, to say nothing of the inexhaustible quantities of water encountered in the aforesaid boring and mining operations. The deepest exploration in mines are the salt mines of Poland, the Calumet, and Hecla Copper Mines and Comstock Lode. These have all been on trail of the some mineral deposits formed by some remote work of nature in the undefinable past. When volcanic or other influences in nature's laboratory left their deposit, these are the only places that man has explored, only insignificant depths and formed extravagant conclusions of the rest of the way. But let us go back to the oceans with their great depths and extended areas. And what do we find? Whether on the equator or on the coast of Greenland, in the tropics of frigid latitudes the same, that at the deepest sea surroundings, the temperature is near or below the freezing point, being literally liquid ice. 
These temperatures are at depths of five times as deep as anybody has bored or dug, and cover four-fifths of the Earth's surface, and instead of being hot, or even warm, are extremely cold. If the internal heat is as great as is claimed, it ought to be enough to set every drop of water in the oceans into a boiling condition inside of 15 minutes, but there does not seem to be heat enough to warm the bottom of the kettle. It is assumed that the earth originated in a nebulous form or an aggregation of small starry bodies or something else which nobody has as yet explained clearly. It is evident that our Earth has come into the present form through a vast amount of time and changes, and is made up largely of liquids and plastic substances, which must have had an existence in its origin. There is little doubt but that all its composition has been revolving through space in some form, for countless millions of years with its mixtures of liquid, gaseous and solid constituents. It does not need a long argument to demonstrate that bodies in such revolutions as the Earth is making have a tendency by centrifugal force to throw the heavier elements to the outside. And as this seems to be a universal law in all scientific experiments by man, it seems reasonable to suppose that the Earth's centrifugal forces are no exception in their results. Such being the case, leads at once to the supposition and probability that the Earth is a hollow globe and not a solid mass, with points of actual poles at each end that can be explored. As water is, and has been in all history we know of, so large a part of the Earth's mass. The object of this writing is to show the wonderful influence it exerts in the world's affairs, and the ample provision nature has in store, and where it is stored for man and animals and vegetation to bank on. But in passing, it is just that a name for many recent years that has been a subject for ridicule should be noticed with profound respect for his wise and superior observations. And this man for whom I wish to speak a word of condemnation and admiration is Captain John Cleve Sims, who I am prepared to allow the honour of first advancing the theory that the earth is hollow and has been held up as the authority for finding Sims Hole, while the present writer had never seen or read any of his arguments for such a hole. The idea came originally, as if never thought of by my worthy predecessor. To avoid any charge of plagiarism, this topic will, therefore, be treated as if never thought of, Assuming that the earth is hollow, the purpose will be in the following pages to show how and why, and the great importance to the inhabitants of the outside that it should be so. The first proposition is, therefore a hollow earth, 
from causes heretofore named by centrifugal force. Next, that the inside is an ocean of fresh water with continents of land and the outside oceans of salt water and its continents, as we have partially learned from them. That the ice belts in each frigid zone are the dividing lines between salt and fresh water, that openings at the approach to either pole are at least 1,500 miles across, and that a magnetic compass above the latitude of 80 to 88 degrees will not keep its natural position at any point within such latitude, but will, in its endeavour, to point the needle to the true centre of motion, lift up the point in order to keep the right bearing, or show some other embarrassment or irregularity. Whoever explores at these latitudes is, instead of going in a course directly to the centre of motion, unconsciously rounding a circle toward the inside. The flattened condition of the earth at the poles goes to accommodate both the claims of being hollow and how it came so to be. We are informed that every raindrop is hollow, falling through a short amount of space, and how more reasonable to suppose the earth's great mass to be so, revolving in an eternity of space. It is more than presumable to suppose that every planetary body in the universe is hollow, and made so by the same fixed law for all flexible bodies in revolution to become hollow, are not the rings of Saturn thus produced. Here is a planet, they tell us, is 700 times as large as the Earth, but its density only 90 times as great. His mean diameter, about 70,000 miles and compression one-tenth, so that the polar diameter is 3,500 miles less, and the equatorial 3,500 miles more than its mean thus duplicating largely the shape and globular form of the earth. It is not reasonable then to suppose that the lack of density has allowed its revolutions to produce its series of rings, those most dense being outside, and the whole order being such that our position allows us to look through them instead of on to the outside surface. Jupiter has the same characteristics in diameters, the mean 85,000 miles, equatorial 87,800, polar 82,200, a difference of 5,600 miles, which means the same influences and same reason to make it hollow. While 1,233 times as large as the Earth, its density of substance is only 301 times as much. Here we have the two largest planets, perhaps yet in their period of development for being inhabited, in very like form relatively as the Earth. It may not be ill-timed to assert at this point the belief that all planetary bodies are hollow and cool, not one in a molten condition or giving out heat, but only generating heat in their own atmospheres, 
thus giving out light, which we, in our ignorance, attribute to a mass of intense heat or a globe in combustion. Such a condition seems unreasonable to exist in a body travelling unlimited space, which is cold beyond any degree of ascertaining. The sun is subject to the same conditions as the earth, as far as obtaining heat, and this work will claim that we receive no more direct heat from the sun than from Mars or Venus. Taking the first proposition that in the absence of friction, there can be no heat or light, the assumption is that the sun generates its heat and light by its wonderful revolution in its own atmosphere. With a diameter of 860,000 miles and revolving in 25.38 days, the sun is moving through its atmosphere a mile and eight-tenths of a second and 75 miles a minute and 4,500 per hour. With an atmosphere of relative density of the Earth's, it is easy to see what a pyrotechnical and electrical display this would reveal to the lens of a telescope, giving the impression of fire on an inconceivable magnitude. It seems unreasonable that in the realm of nature anything or that anywhere fuel can be found for an eternal fire except in an old orthodox hell. To an observer on Mars or Venus, the Earth would no doubt present the same star-like appearance that those planets do to our earthly eyes. The electrical sparks on a trolley wire or dynamo give the same expression to our eyes, though in miniature, with no consciousness of heat to our feelings. It is doubtful if, with all these observations of the sun by telescope, we have gained any knowledge of its structure, but only of its revolutions, size and movements, the same as the earth. It would be a very difficult subject to diagnose clearly as to its productions of animal and vegetable life. The electrical influences through an atmosphere proportionally deep with ours, with its clouds that must exist in the same, could very thoroughly obscure the surface of the sun. Unless at special intervals, when certain exposures would be called sunspots, either on a great space of continent or ocean, the great flames of gases in the atmosphere would give the impression by a telescopic view of a burning mass, when under these atmospheric flames all is cool and calm. In the writer's mind there is no doubt, but the sun is as favourable in condition for animal and vegetable life as the earth, and has both in proportional greater variety and species. Nature, having no limit to designs, uses no duplicates, never repeats herself in anything. No two grains of seed, no two snowflakes are ever just alike. A million bushels of peas will have no two alike, yet every one has its individuality as a pea. 
A man cannot discriminate one blackbird from another in a flock, but to the birds they are as individual as mankind to each other. For these reasons it is easy to see that every planet may be peopled with different varieties of animal and vegetable life as it is to find the variations in different countries of the earth. While the climate of the sun may be hotter than that of the earth, nature can adapt itself to any condition of heat or cold. Thus far the argument has been chiefly in considering the influence of heat by friction on planetary surfaces. Later this influence will be briefly taken up to demonstrate its interior effect in producing earthquakes and volcanoes. For a diversion we will for a while consider the effect of centrifugal force on the earth. The earth gives many manifestations of said force in the shape of the continents, courses of rivers, outlets of bays and ranges of mountains. North America gradually swings to the east as it approaches the equator. South America, at the equator, bulges most to the east. The mountain ranges, the Rockies and Sierra Nevada in North America the Andes in South America, forming a barrier against the further encroachment of the Pacific Ocean. The west coast of Africa is protected by the Atlantic, largely by the mountains of Morocco, including the black and white running south, somewhat protecting Senegambia and the Kong, and other mountain ranges in Upper and Lower Guinea stop the encroachment of the line of the Gulf in Guinea. In Asia, Hindustan has the Gant Mountains for a barrier, while another range of mountains holds the peninsula of Malacca in place. It will be plainly seen that all of these points of countries lean toward the equatorial centre of motion. The islands of Oceanica, strung out of the line of the equator, also show the effect of the Earth's revolution. The island of Australia is apparently a new production in embryo of a new continent, in future connection with some of the large adjacent islands, and ultimately of most of the island groups of Oceanica. The same result is likely to follow with the greater and lesser Antilles. The rivers are marked evidence of centrifugal force on both continents. The largest, the Amazon, running nearly on line of the equator and emptying there. All the rivers, almost without exception, north of the equator to the Arctic Circle, run southeast when they can, and at their mouths tend that way. Those south tend northeast where the face of the country will admit. The Nile, a freak river, is about the only marked exception. On the north outflows like the Yukon, Mackenzie and Great Fish in North America, the Yosemite and Lena and many smaller streams of Europe and Asia flow to the Arctic Ocean. 
these last named streams so far from the great centre of motion, and on account of the marked incline to the country toward the polar centres head that way, and no doubt contribute largely to the great inflow of water to the internal ocean. The west coasts of both continents are marked for their dearth of great streams. The open sea problem introduces the importance of this disquisition. If there is an open sea, which is in all probability true, it must be the open door to an inside world as truly as the coming back from those high latitudes. And entering open sea is the evidence of our habitable outside world. With all deference to the reports of Arctic explorers, it is very doubtful if they really know their actual positions or latitudes, with freaky compasses and unfavourable conditions about them, so that their stories and adventures, while honestly told, need to be taken with a grain of salt. They tell us of witnessing the breaking off of icebergs of mammoth size from glaciers, which no doubt is true. It would be true if one was seen as big as the capital at Washington, or as large as the largest Egyptian pyramid, but doubtful if they ever saw one, one-tenth as large as the latter, or as large as the former. The venture will be taken here to consider and explain the character formation of a true big iceberg which it is supposedly changed their location to both inside and outside waters. As they said, the ice belt is the dividing line between salt and fresh waters. This being the case, large expanses of the ocean in the Arctic region must be frozen over, as water is an exception to most everything else by growing lighter as it grows colder. It rises above its water level. Without this provision of nature, our lakes would become solid masses of ice, and rivers would become mountains, thus extinguishing fish and producing a mass so deep and solid that a summer season would hardly melt away. This can be evidenced in any tub of water standing out in cold night. Water does not congeal entirely on the surface, but rises in frozen particles from below, like cream on milk. This is shown by its rising and swelling up in the centre, and pressing the outside of the vessel to bursting. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you're feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. Until next time, good night.